0: this is speaking of the arts mid-missouri's only in-depth weekly art show recorded in the heart of the midwest columbia missouri and broadcast each thursday evening from seven till eight on 89.5 fm kopn columbia my name is diana Moxon. Before we get underway with this week's show, which is excitingly transatlantic and not just because of my origins, I want to say a big thank you to three people: Tracy Lane, Shay Jasper, and Jamie Vavaro for making magic happen in Stevens Lake Park at last weekend's Roots and Blues Festival. Thank you for dreaming big, for holding tight to those dreams when everything seemed to be against you over the past 18 months and you could so easily have just given up, for putting together a visionary lineup of female musicians, for navigating all of the health department protocols and keeping us safe, and for creating a wonderful space for healing through music. The word that keeps being used about the festival is magical, and although I admit I am a pop princess at heart, standing amidst the beauty of Stevens Lake Park and listening to incredible musicians send their energy out over a crowd of 10,000 happy people was transcending. And yes, magical. And to all the hundreds of volunteers who set up the park, cleaned the park all weekend, answered questions, solved problems, and then returned the park to Mother Nature after we had all gone home, thank you too. I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. And so... On with the show. First stop, Maine. As Broadway opens up again, so too do theatres around the country, including our own Macklenburg Playhouse at Stevens College, which kicks off its 21-22 season this weekend with the romantic comedy Almost Maine, a play comprised of nine mini-plays which explore falling in love and falling out of love in a remote make-believe town in Maine that isn't quite a town, Hence its name, Almost. It is one of the most frequently produced plays in North American high schools and in a rather interesting compare and contrast opportunity, not only is the play opening at Stevens-Macklenburg Theatre this weekend, but it is also opening at William Woods University's Dulaney Auditorium. So we have the option of watching two versions back to back. But with me this evening is the director of the Stevens College version, Brett Olson. Good evening, Brett. Hi
1: there. Thanks for having me.
0: So it is almost a little meta, given that the nine vignettes in the play take place in the same 10-minute period. And now we have two productions taking place in the same four-day period. So with so many plays out there, how are two colleges doing the same show at the same time?
1: (laughs) Well, I think that... Almost Maine has a universal quality that uh, is a, a message of hope, ultimately, even in the vignettes where love is lost. I think there's a, a strong suggestion that it's a moment of growth for the character. So it makes sense that in the, the current climate we're in, everyone is, is looking to get back to live theater and probably also needs, a you know, something light and, and comic that also has a, a nice theme
0: Indeed. Well, An early New York Times review had said that the play will evoke either awws or icks, depending on your affection for its whimsical approach to the joys and perils of romance. And it does tread a fine line between mawkish farce at times and sweet comedy about the pitfalls of love. What drew you to the play? What do you love about it?
1: Well, in the foreword to the play, John Cariani, the, the playwright, says that the play is for romantics and mm. not sentimentalists. <laughs> And I think that's poignant and a direction that we really tried to steer this production to. Actually, it was the first play I was in in undergrad over 10 years ago as a theater major. And so coming full circle, it felt like a, an appropriate sort of romantic version of, of these tales to bring back to the stage as, as our Stevens College, you know, our first production back in person.
0: I'm not sure how I would differentiate between romantic and sentimental in terms of this play. How do you stay true to that request?
1: The way that, that we've kind of envisioned that is that there can't be great hope without great despair. Um, sort of like the, the romantic period of these great sort of opposites in the human experience and the antithesis of, of good and bad and that really one can't be fully appreciated without the other. So I think a sentimental production of Almost Main is always going for the, the ahs and the (laughs) sighs, right? Um, but a romantic one lets you know that, Hey, this is, this is what life is like sometimes. And it's not all, it's not all size. It's sometimes it's, it's hard.
0: Well, the play is a series of nine vignettes, each one featuring different people, but all taking place between 8.50 and 9pm on a cold, clear, moonless, slightly surreal Friday night in the middle of the deepest part of a northern Maine winter. So tell us about some of the people we meet and their journeys.
1: Oh, yes. Well each each vignette let me say it this way each vignette has sort of a a little bit of a magical trope that happens so there's a character that can't feel any pain and through the course of the scene that comes into question there's a a couple that uh, don't know how to express their their love for each other so one writes a pointillism painting of something to declare the love but the other she can't tell what it is, you know, she can't make it out. There's, there's a lot of these semi-magical things that come up. And each play as it stands alone means that we get to see the, the beginning of the conflict, all of the, you know, twists and turns and the resolution in each scene.
0: You also have another non-human character in the play of the Northern Lights, which adds this magical surrealism to it. How are you staging that?
1: Well, actually we have a student designer who has worked quite diligently on figuring it out I, you know i asked for northern lights that were tangible physical things that could be flown into the space rather than just put on the psych um upstage of the action and so we have camo netting actually is as the way that we've dis- we've figured out how to bring in the northern lights and they they fly in at different periods and then our lighting designer vincent has lit them so that we have these sort of pulsating, physical northern lights that come in and out when they're called for in the script.
0: Tell me a little bit about the set design. You have to cover nine different scenes. Some are indoors, some are outdoors. So you've said you've got to conjure up the northern lights and a little surrealism. What are you, what's your design goal for the set?
1: It's actually fairly minimal. So we were trying to figure out a way to, because these are all two or three person scenes, we were trying to find a way to make our largest space, the Mecklenburg Playhouse, feel intimate. And so there's only suggestive scenic materials. We might have some furniture or a door, but it's all set in the same sort of backdrop of this main forest, you know, cutouts of trees. Um, It's the same night sky every night because it's the same 10 minutes over and over again.
0: So despite this being a romantic comedy, there are some lovely moments of truth in the play, the different conversations between people. I love when uh, one of the characters, Glory, says to this guy that she's just met, I just wanted to say goodbye to her dead husband in my own way, not as his sad ex-wife at some big public service. And and then Phil, another character, says to his wife, Marcy, y- you don't tell me what you feel about me. So I never know where I am, where I stand. Which which moments stand out for you? Which couples kind of stay with you after everyone's left the auditorium?
1: Actually, I think that that line you mentioned in Phil and Marcy's scene, where it went, this, this idea that the couple is fighting for something, but they don't know how, uh, that, that's quite universal to me. I think that that one was quite poignant, and I love seeing the thing. I'm from North Dakota, where snowmobiling is. I, I would snowmobile to school growing up. Maybe like the residents of of almost Maine. So having these characters who come in in all of the snow gear and like the swishing sounds, there's a of of their movements, and then um, having them sort of awkwardly navigating. <laughs> Falling in love with each other is always entertaining to me.
0: Your production is based on the third revised edition. And this is noteworthy because it is really in response to the Me Too movement that the first and eighth vignettes change to either remove or clarify unacceptable male behavior. Um, You know, when I think about the vast majority of theatrical output, you know, predates the Me Too movement. It seems like a thousand plays could use a little bit of tweaking. What discussions have you had with your cast around this?
1: Yeah, it became very important to us that we did that third version. There are a number of moments in the play in which either uh, a male character or a female identifying character makes um, like a physical advance without sort of any warning. And it kind of comes out of nowhere in those earlier versions. And I think the intent was not to be one of of a question of consent, but was of this sort of magical moment thing, which was misguided, frankly. And Cariani says as much in the new forward to the third edition. So for us, we wanted to make sure that we were both honoring what the what the play originally said, we weren't trying to say like uh, this. This didn't happen. It wasn't originally performed like that. So we did have some discussions about this was maybe where where it was trying to go. But clearly, the changes that have been made to the script are more appropriate and and develop the characters and the action in a more effective way.
0: Generally speaking, as you're choosing plays to be produced these days, are you? looking through that filter and then saying no to certain plays because they don't fit the time we're living in?
1: I think so. I know that I do. And I I think that's a thing that that, that comes up pretty frequently here at Stevens in our season selection committee is how can we make sure that we're creating theatre of the moment? And if we are going to create theatre that is, you know, not of the moment, how can it still be through this contemporary lens? One of the hallmark differences between film and television and theatre is just just what you said. It takes longer for theatrical scripts to get into the hands of colleges and high schools, um, whereas film and television can write week by week for the current moment.
0: With this play, John Cariani is a living playwright, so he had that opportunity to adapt his play. But if you're working with a play where the playwright is is already dead, a ha- What liberties are you allowed to have to make those changes?
1: It depends on the publisher. Some publishers are okay with you maybe shifting the lens a little bit, either on uh, gender or intent. Some publishers are, are very crystal clear that you must set the play where the playwright intended it to be set. The characters must have these particular identities or present these particular identities. And then the sort of final way around that, though, is anything that's in the public domain, we kind of have carte blanche to do with what we will. So this is why we always see productions of Shakespeare that, you know, might be on the moon or Mm -hmm. or what have you, because we can use that as we will. Going
0: back to Almost Maine, the, the playwright John Cariani leaves a lot of notes. He talks about how at the close of each scene, the characters are about to experience joy, but that that moment is beyond the script and that the light fades at the moment of change. And he urges the directors not to cheat, not to skip the scary, trepidatious feelings, but to leave room for a hint of the joy to come and keep us, the audience, on the verge of happy, but not quite happy. And that seems like a pretty tall order. How do you direct that?
1: (laughs) So we ended up trying to make every scene not end in a static tableau, but rather a slight continuation of action. So you might see a scene end in a stage picture, and we think they're about to experience joy or heartache. And Rather than freezing as the lights come down, there, there will be just like a hint of movement. Either they'll lean in or they'll lean out or a character will have a slow glance in a different direction as the lights come down so that we get the sense that their story isn't over.
0: There are a lot of notes from the director. There's advice on the physical comedy of one scene, the shape of an actor in another, on the transitions between scenes, on the endings, the language. As a director, do you like being so explicitly managed?
1: <laughs> that that's a, a a wonderful question. I think <laughs> that I appreciate it because every time a playwright fleshes out a piece that much, whether or not we ultimately go in that specific direction, I think it just creates a more um fleshed out world. And not just the director of the production, but the actors, the designers, they all get to read that and it sparks their imagination. Tennessee Williams does the same thing now is it going to feel exactly like Tennessee Williams envisioned maybe not but I think it really helps in terms of going okay well now let's put that through the lens of this creative team and see what, what our northern lights look and feel like
0: Would John Cariani to turn up at your production would you feel confident that he would be happy
1: <laughs> wow uh, I think so I think so one, one of the things that we've really been proud of or felt successful at is the, the honesty of the acting that I think we've got we've arrived at with this production. Um, it's, again, it's, it's pretty easy to look at it through a sentimental lens and let it just be about the laughs or just be about the love. But even in these short 10-minute, sometimes five-minute scenes, sometimes 30-second vignettes, We've made these characters real people, I think.
0: Mm. One of the uh, directions that he gives that just kind of made me shake my head, and I thought, I don't know how you do this. He says, your goal as you direct the play is to make the audience make noise, whether that's laughing or gasping or uttering strange sounds, which seems like a difficult ask as audiences vary wildly from night to night. And whilst you're rehearsing and getting all of the beats right, you are not doing it in front of an audience. That only happens after you've opened. And I'm curious how much of this particular request you take on.
1: <laughs> well that that's always the trick especially in academic theater you know in some professional settings you're going to open you're going to have a sequence of previews where you can make adjustments after you have an audience so for us opening night is going to be paramount as to whether or not the audience is gasping or laughing, and and we've, we try to prepare them, uh, the students, we've talked about it, you know, this is going to, this is going to change a little bit, but to stay true to what we've rehearsed, you know, to not make changes only for the sake of the audience reaction.
0: Right, well we should all be stage moms when we come and make sure we do lots of gasping and laughing in all the right places. <laughs> <laughs>
1: right, right. I've laughed the same jokes for five weeks, but but honestly, most of the time.
0: Almost Maine is definitely in the slightly cheesy rom-com genre, a little evocative of love, actually, maybe. Uh, And as one reviewer said of it, sometimes on a cold winter night, there's nothing more comforting than a dish of warm, gooey fondue. And after the last 18 months of sorrow and loss, maybe it is time for some... Cheesy melting.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Almost Maine opens at the Macklenburg Theatre tonight and runs through this weekend with evening performances at 7.30 and a Sunday matinee at 2. You can find out more about Stevens' upcoming theatre season at stephens.edu forward slash box hyphen office. Brett Olson, congratulations on being back on a real life theatre stage again and thank you so much for the chat today.
1: Yeah, thank you. It was a great conversation.
0: Within the next few months, there will be another English woman working in the arts in Colombia, which is very exciting and gives me someone else with whom I can have proper tea and biscuits. Chloe Trainer has been appointed as the new artistic director for the Ragtag Film Society, which encompasses both Ragtag Cinema and the True False Film Fest. And although she is still located in London for a few more months, she is already working with the True False team locally to plan for the 2022 fest. And Chloe is no novice. To the world of film festivals, having previously served as the artistic director for London's Open City Documentary Film Festival, and the Women in Film-focused Underwire Film Festival. Plus, she's worked for the British Film Institute's Future Film Festival and the Overnight Film Festival, the premise of which I love, a one-night, all-night festival which took place in a seaside hotel on the south coast of England and sounds like brilliant fun. And this evening, Chloe is joining me from London to chat about film, filmmaking and making the transition from a city of nine and a half million people to our wee city of 120,000. Chloe, what fun to get to chat with you. Hello. Hi. It sounds really scary when you put it like that in hard numbers. (laughs) Well, there's that old Samuel Johnson saying about when a man is tired of London, he is tired of life. And although he might have had a point in 1777, I think the rest of the world's got a bit more interesting since then. But I will ask you, how are you mentally preparing for moving from a world city to a point on the map?
2: Yeah, it's an interesting mental process of, (laughs) um, I think it's partially kind of letting go of a life that you've built in a certain in a place, in a city here in London, and also opening yourself up for the possibilities of what that new life is going to look like. I'm definitely going to miss London. I think London's an amazing place to live. There's so much going on. There's so many people to meet. You can never bump into someone that you know if you're walking around the streets for a month, um, which might sound off-putting to some people, but I personally love.
0: (laughs) That's going to (laughs) end. Yes, yes.
2: So it's a bit of a shift in gear in my mind, but I'm really looking forward to the kind of adventure of living somewhere that's so very different to what I'm used to. I also, I think I'm romanticizing a little bit some of the kind of everyday American things. I've always been somebody that loves going to Target or kind of going to IHOP, (laughs) um, Denny's. My American friends always tease me when I say I want to go to Denny's, but I think all of that stuff is really novel to me still. And so I think that will be really exciting to me to get to do all the everyday things that just seem quite mundane to people that live there. And also I think the job that I'm doing and will be doing there is so exciting to me that I think I could be living anywhere and still be really happy doing it.
0: Well, my sources also tell me that one of the reasons you feel comfortable moving to the Midwest is your teenage obsession with the movie The Virgin Suicides. And I'm thinking that maybe that's not a good basis for going to live in the middle of Missouri, given that we can also boast Winter's Bone and Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. And of course, We Always Lie to Strangers by Rag Tech founder David Wilson. So are there any Midwest expectations you'd like to share with me that I can either confirm or shatter? Um, okay. So
2: I'm imagining lots of calling from the Virgin Suicides, kind of teenage angst and frustration from the younger generation at where they live that might come out in interesting ways. Hopefully not in the ways that it comes out in the Virgin Suicides, obviously that should go without saying. I've been to Columbia for the festival, but that was obviously a very specific experience and I didn't go much outside of downtown so I'm imagining lots of tree-lined streets that you can walk down and in sun-dappled light and kind of pass the time that way just taking things in and also I think the main thing is I'm expecting everybody to be incredibly friendly and very open and will talk to you on the street about anything that's the kind of vibe that I'm expecting is that Completely
0: off, or am I, <laughs> am I at least warm? I think you're warm. I think people are very friendly and people do say hello on the street. Whenever we go back to England, my husband is always saying hello to people on the street and they just look at him weirdly like we don't say hello to each other in England, just keep walking. So there is definitely that difference. And um, oh, sunlight, dappled tree lined streets, maybe not so much in Columbia, but we do have a very big tree. <laughs> We have a, a very famous oak tree on the outskirts of Columbia, the Burr Oak. So, you know, you could just walk around and around the Burr Oak and enjoy the dappled light coming through that tree's leaves. So there's there's that. So yeah, you're warm. That's a whole Saturday's activity right there. <laughs> I think you should go there straight from the airport just so that you can check it off the list. <laughs> Can't wait.
2: I'll be there multiple times. I don't think it's a one time <laughs> event.
0: Well, it isn't because one of the events that True False does every year is the Boondordle, which is a bike ride from Columbia out to a nearby little village called Rocheport for a film, an evening film. And we all cycle along the trail. And one of the stops on the bike ride is the Burr Oak. So you will definitely be there multiple times. There you go. So you were here, as you said, in, I think it was in 2019, you came to the True False Film Fest. But you had known David Wilson, who was the Fest's founder and outgoing artistic director for many years before that. How did you first learn about True False and meet David Wilson?
2: So I first learned about True False through some friends who were working on a festival called Bronkage, which took place on the island of Jersey, which is just off the coast of England. And Broncage was very similar in ethos and artistic intentions as True False, and they took a lot of inspiration from them. And so they were actually, they became sister festivals. And so the True False team at the time, I know, came over to Jersey and were really involved in kind of having conversations about what a film festival can be and all of that kind of interesting good stuff. And so I found out about them through that and then then realised that they were also doing really amazing things with their film programming outside of kind of the more, um, you know, kind of small location, taking over the town kind of vibe that it shared with Broncage. And yeah, I met David in, I think it was 2014 because he was on a jury. We invited him to be on a jury when I was working at Open City Documentary Festival. And so he came over to London. It was also, interestingly, the year that Robert Green came to London, we presented Actress. And Robert also did a masterclass. And I think at the time he had just moved to Colombia. And so it was this strange kind of coalescing of things that we had these two Colombia men in town. And they both said such wonderful things about True False and what True False were doing. And ever since then, I've followed with an eagle eye online all of the programs every year, and then was lucky enough to go in 2019 and experience it for myself for the first time.
0: I'm always amazed on the rare occasion when I talk to someone in Colombia who has either not heard of True Falls or only has a vague sense about it I mean where what are they reading what are they doing how do you not know about this festival and I know there are people thousands of miles away like you who follow it so as someone in the film industry what kind of buzz about the fest is out there and how do you heard about it before coming over
2: yeah I think the Buzz internationally is really created by the filmmakers. Um, People who have screened work in the festival are almost like evangelical about (laughs) true-false. And so, you know, if you say to a filmmaker that you work at a festival, chances are you'll somehow get on to talking about true-false and they'll tell you about the amazing time that they had there and, you know, about these parties and about the parade and about all of these little things that make true-false so special. And that was what was really exciting to me as well, was finding a festival that really put filmmakers first, because I think that's something that I'm really passionate about. And there's not necessarily many festivals that are doing that. You know, festivals sit in this kind of binary space of being either like public audience festivals or industry-facing festivals, and very few do anything outside of one of those two things. And so for me to kind of hear from filmmakers themselves that this place felt so supportive and embracing of the murkiness of nonfiction filmmaking and the different forms that it can take felt really exciting. And I think if you can have that many filmmakers going around the world talking so positively about your festival, that's probably a really good sign about what you're creating for
0: them. How did what you had heard match up with the reality of your festival experience? You know, you came here with high expectations. Did it exceed the expectations? What was your experience? Yeah, I had a really amazing time when I came. I came with
2: a colleague at the time because I was working at Open City. And I also came with a friend who was a critic, Kelly Weston. And so we kind of had our own little like, you know, gang who were going around the festival together, which I think was really great because I think festivals can always be overwhelming when you're going for the first time and, you know, whether you know anybody or not. And so to have that little gang there was really nice. And I think it was colder than I expected. Um, There was a snowstorm that year and I hadn't packed any snow boots. So that was a bit of a surprise. But otherwise, it really lived up to everything that I'd heard like I was so curious to see how all of these ideas would actually play out in reality like what would it be like to have musicians playing when the audience are coming in and what would these parties in pop-up spaces feel like and what would having art installations across the town actually be like and I think also a lot of the things when you hear them on paper can sometimes like you just can't really imagine how that works in reality and especially like as a british person who's very like cynical about a lot of things you know when i heard about the parade for instance i was like i don't understand how this <laughs> is like a thing that so many people enjoy like on paper i was like i don't i don't know about this and then i i was there and i was like oh my god i'm filled with so much joy and it was almost inexplicable how much i enjoyed that experience because everybody was just so happy and live music and to like yeah warm the heart of a very cold british woman i think is quite impressive <laughs> so yeah it lived up to it in ways that i didn't really know to expect if that makes sense yeah it was a great a great experience
0: americans love parades i just tell you that up front. <laughs> i think what is interesting too for me as a, another fellow british person is the sense of volunteerism mm. that is here and and that people expect to do it it's part of your kind of civic duty to volunteer for different organizations and you look at things like true false and how many the huge like thousands and thousands of hours of volunteer help that make the festival happen. And that would never happen in England. People would be like, well, what are you going to pay me for this? I mean, it's just a very, very different mindset. And that's a beautiful thing about about all the festivals in Colombia, too, is that uh, and, and all the organizations, all the arts in Colombia exist because of people giving their time. Did that seem surprising to you as well? Yeah, I was really struck because I think you come into contact with so
2: many volunteers when you're at the festival and everybody was so warm and invested and everyone was saying, you know, we do things this way, not like they. I was actually having a conversation with a colleague about that difference of when volunteers feel you know that they are part of something they're more likely to say we whereas if they're on the outside they would say they and I was really struck by that feeling of ownership that I think a lot of the volunteers had over what they were doing because they were so invested in the mission and they were clearly just having a really great time even if they were just checking tickets or doing something that when you think about it is not necessarily the most exciting task in the world but because they were contributing to something that was so special and so great. And also because the organisation, you know, from an outside perspective, and also now being on the inside, I can tell, really value their contributions. I think that really struck me. um, You know, there was no begrudgingness of the people there. And also I was really struck by how people from completely different walks of life were doing it. I think In London, you often get like students volunteering for this thing, these things exclusively because they have the spare time and they're interested in the stuff. But actually, I had some amazing conversations with volunteers who were in their 60s or were middle aged people who were working in a completely different industry who just gave their time to this. Um, And that was really amazing, like having those conversations and meeting those people that you otherwise wouldn't come across or cross paths with, have reason to talk to felt really unique to me and very, yeah, very un-British, I
0: would say. So you have a a long history with film, but before we get to some of your adult professional experiences, let's float back in time to the University of Leeds where you got your Bachelor of Arts degree in film studies, a city which I only found out when I was researching it was uh, where the first ever motion picture allegedly was made in 1888. So what was it that propelled you into a degree in film? Good question. Thank you. Um,
2: I actually was originally going to study journalism because I wanted to be a film critic. Mm. I then realised that journalism wasn't the correct way to become a film critic. And I took a year out after finishing school and went travelling and worked. And so I reapplied within that year to do film. And at that point in time, I wasn't sure whether I wanted to be a film critic or whether I wanted to be a filmmaker. I just knew that I was like obsessed with films. I was one of those kids who, anytime that I was at home, if I wasn't reading a book, then I would be watching a film. I had VHS tapes that I would watch on repeat every single day when I would get home from school. So I've seen, you know, things like The Virgin Suicides, I've seen 50 times, and other kind of less art house fair as well. So things like Bring It On, which is a cheerleader teen movie like I know every single word in that film because I would watch it obsessively over and over again and I just knew that I was like in love with with cinema like as a as an art form as something that took me to places that I couldn't otherwise even imagine and put me in other people's shoes And so, yeah, I knew that I wanted to be involved in it in some way, whether that was making my own films or appreciating other people's films and letting other people know about them. And so after some conversations with my parents to explain what uh, career I would have if I went to study a degree in film, I went off to Leeds and had an amazing
0: experience there. Did you explore any filmmaker aspirations while you were there? I did yes the the degree that I had was half practical
2: filmmaking and half film theory and history, and so I did make films. they were terrible, um, <laughs> which was why I am not a filmmaker today i I produced some films which I would argue I could probably still do. I'm very good at organizing and getting things done and that side of things, but ultimately, I wanted to write and direct and I was not very good when I actually came down to doing it. Um, If my student short films ever get out on the internet, then I think I will have to disappear and change my name because (laughs) I would be
0: mortified. So in recent years, you've been focused on documentary film with London's Open City Documentary Film Festival, but you had worked previously with the Underwire Film Festival and the Overnight Festival, which were much broader in scope. Where does your film heart lie?
2: Definitely with nonfiction. I've been I've been involved with Open City for most of my career. I started there in 2014 and yeah, was more recently festival director until 2020. And yeah, that's always been what I've really loved. I've always tried to bring nonfiction into the other things that I've done, even if they are more broad. That's not to say that I don't love fiction and that I don't love things like animation. But I think for me, nonfiction, um, I have just always loved having like an in-depth knowledge about something rather than a broad knowledge about everything. And so when I was at university and realised that I was really interested in this like creative documentary, which came from actually watching Jesus Camp, which I think was also made in Missouri, interestingly, and I realised, oh, you can make documentaries that aren't just talking heads or aren't just educational and actually allow you to experience those films in the way that I had like fallen in love with fiction filmmaking and can like take you on emotional journeys and put you in places you'd never be in and step into people's shoes for a moment.
0: Right. Well, historically, by which I mean before I came to live in Colombia, I don't think I would have been enticed to go and see a documentary, maybe because of years watching obscure BBC documentaries and it just felt like it was a much more educational than entertainment experience. Yet now, after 15 years of true-false, for me, documentaries are definitely what I seek out. And I'm not sure if that's because the world of documentaries has become better funded, more fashionable, more prolific over the last decade or more or whether it's just the true false effect for me here in Columbia. And I'm curious about your work with the festival in London, and what audience expectations are there? Mm,
2: Yeah, this is something I've been thinking a lot about when thinking about audience is what I'm kind of used to, which is a London audience, which is a very culturally engaged audience, I would say that film festivals still feel quite elitist here Mm. and definitely not open to everybody. Kind of a lot of people that you will see at film festivals tend to also work in the cultural industries, whether that's, you know, film, TV, publishing. And actually it's more rare that you would see somebody who has no kind of professional link to film and is just like interested in film. Obviously those people are there, but I think they are in the minority more. And I think for me, that's one of the things that's really interesting about coming to True False is seeing how like open the festival is in terms of the public audience. And like I was saying before with volunteers of like the people who don't have any professional connection to coming to see those films, but just personal interest into maybe being challenged or being pushed to see things that they wouldn't otherwise go to see. And I'm really looking forward to challenging myself on that as well, of moving out of who, who I understand the audience to be and kind of discovering this new new audience, to me at least. Um, I think in the UK as a whole, like documentary is still not as respected. Like there's not as many theatrical documentaries released as in the US. It's constantly dwindling. So to me... The US, although I'm sure I know it has its problems as well, like is much more open minded about documentary. And so that feels like a really positive step, especially thinking about funding and supporting filmmakers. The US is definitely in a very different place to the UK where our industry is so small and there's so little money for filmmakers. It's it's quite um, desperate, really, to be honest.
0: We're talking about funding in the American system. I mean, what do you see as being the main issues facing documentary filmmakers in a world that is now dominated by companies like Netflix and Hulu and Apple TV? And they are throwing huge amounts of money at certain projects. Is that affecting the industry generally in a positive or a negative way?
2: I think we we're a very interesting moment because everyone keeps talking about the golden age of documentary and like you say, Netflix do throw money and Amazon and Apple and other places like throw money at films. And is that actually feeding the wider documentary ecosystem? I don't necessarily think so. Um, I think that there's lots of interesting opportunities coming to support more diverse filmmakers. Definitely that's really like exciting for me to see but it does create this kind of imbalance it kind of overlooks the films that don't easily fit into the categories that those those funders are necessarily looking for and I think a lot of filmmakers are overlooked because their films are not easy sells and to me I think like the best non-fiction scenario is really complicated and shouldn't really be able to be explained in a single line but that's off-putting to other people when they're dealing with these big budgets and there is so many other projects that are more simple and straightforward and you know exactly what you're going to get before the filmmakers even filmed anything. I think for me, the biggest challenge for filmmakers is the lack of support at the development stage. So right at the beginning of the process, there is so little funding for that part of the process that so many filmmakers have to self-fund that part, they have to do it while they're working full-time. It's almost like the archetype of a novelist who writes their novel in their bedroom after work and then they publish their book and it goes out there. But imagine writing a novel is one person, whereas making a film is such a huge undertaking and requires so much money and time to make a good film. And so... To me, like the biggest challenge is that there's not enough support at that point. And so the doors are closing because if you can't afford to self-fund your project or, you know, pay your rent in some other way so that you have the time, like time is such a gift and a privilege. And if you don't have those things, then chances are your project won't get off the ground because there's maybe a handful of places that you can apply to for a grant to support you at development. So, yeah, for me, that's like my little soapbox to the industry is that I wish that there was more support for development and more support for projects that might not know yet exactly what they're going to be, but really deserve the support and the time and the space to to figure that out.
0: Which is why I guess you founded the Assembly Documentary Development Lab, which is exactly that, that you ask filmmakers, they submit their ideas, you look through them, they're invited to a four-day intensive workshop, at the end of which they get to pitch their film idea for potentially £10,000, $13,000 in development funding. But you're looking for funding for that, that the funding that you had had gone away. And I guess that's... Part of the endless challenge is even for you trying to help young filmmakers, you also need funding to fund them. Yeah, it's a catch-22. <laughs> what happens to the Assembly documentary development lab now that you're here? Is that something you want to carry on working with?
2: Yeah, it is. I'm, yeah, I'm still figuring out what Assembly will look like moving forward. Um, it's It's a project that's very close to my heart, but it's also one that makes very little financial sense. Um, It was very much created to respond to exactly what I was talking about, where there is no funding at development stage and filmmakers are often expected to know exactly what their film is already, which kind of contradicts the whole idea of development. But it was, yeah, it was also designed to support projects that wouldn't be supported elsewhere and to very actively do the best thing for the filmmakers, which is unfortunately not always the way that the industry works. You know, often priority is given to other things rather than filmmakers and how to make their art in the best way. And so, yeah, funding wise, it's it's a tricky project. And I'm taking time, especially with having taken on this role, to think through who the right partner to work with on that might be moving forward.
0: Right. Well, as of August, you are officially the new artistic director for True False. And I'm curious why you think you got the job and if you were surprised that you got it? That's a good question. Yeah,
2: (laughs) I was surprised. Um, I think I was surprised because I knew that I would be, you know, a big risk for the organisation in terms of being based in the UK and not having a work visa and Not already being embedded within the North American documentary space. And actually, I think that's also partly why I got the job, is because I think I bring such a different perspective Mm -hmm. on things while also really respecting what's happened before at the organization and being very, um, really loving what. True False and Brank Cinema as well has always been, but coming at it from a completely different angle to anybody else that's ever really worked there, I suppose, is one way to put it. And to me, that's really heartening that they decided to take that risk and decided to say, we don't know when you'll be able to be here and all of those kind of things that are at the mercy of the US immigration system. And so... For me, I was really, when I did find out that I had the job, that just made me even more excited for where the organisation was going, that they were forward thinking enough to take that jump and say, we want that new perspective and we want that kind of fresh voice, even if it makes things a little bit harder. So as you know, they didn't pick the easy option. They picked the thing that to me says that they're really open to change and open to the next step, which is the kind of organisation that I would like to be a part of.
0: I mean, in many ways, I think it's tougher... Walking into a new job where there is a well established history of success because there's nothing significant to fix. But also, I know, I mean, the arts thrives on on that exploration of new ideas and creativity and pushing the boundaries. So what are some of the tweaks you'd like to make at True False? I know you're gonna go slowly, slowly, but what are some of the ideas maybe from the Open City Documentary Festival that you think would work here? What are some of your ideas?
2: As I said, I really love what True, False has been doing. So I don't think it's going to be huge changes. It will be these smaller tweaks. I think a lot of it as well is just bringing to the forefront things that have already been happening and kind of figuring out how to connect those with audiences in a more intentional way. So, for instance, one of the things that I'm really keen on doing is integrating more audio documentary work It's something that I did a lot of when I was at Open City and I think it's a really interesting dialogue between non-fiction storytelling in different forms. So there's already like a cross-media element at the festival which is called Control-Alt-Shift or some people may know it as the VR arcade. So that's one element of non-fiction storytelling. Then you have the film side and so for me the missing piece there is audio and so I would like to bring that in. Something that I did at Open City was play short audio documentaries before features in the way that you would play short films. So that's something that you might be seeing at the 2023 festival and onwards. But beyond just the programming, also like bringing those artists in conversation together and making space for people to have these kind of wider conversations about nonfiction practice outside of just Q&As after films. I know that there's lots of long-held opinions about panels or whether panels are boring, but I think making space for conversations that might be in an interesting format, that's really exciting to me. I think also a small tweak will be bringing in a bit more international programming into the festival. I think there's like an amazing international presence, but I think there can always be more. And that's like a space that I think is really my kind of strong suit as well. So, and then... The final element, which I think is the kind of biggest big picture tweak is also looking at the artist support programs and looking at how that will develop over the coming years, how we can best support filmmakers growing new programs and bolstering the existing ones. So we have the rough cut retreat already, but looking at yeah how we can approach that in a more kind of, um, I use this phrase, full spectrum approach, which just means like looking at the whole process and how you can support filmmakers in lots of different stops in their journey, if that makes sense. And I think that's one of the big things that I'm looking at, which is kind of much bigger picture, five-year plan style things, but how we can really actively support filmmakers and help them continue to make great
0: films. I'm not sure I completely understand what you mean by audio documentary.
2: Oh, so I suppose it's, well, it's a complicated debate as to whether podcast is the right word or whether that is just the dissemination method. But if you think about things like This American Life Mm. or Love and Radio or The Heart by Caitlin Prest, things like that that use audio documentary in like interesting storytelling ways, that's what I mean by audio documentary.
0: Okay, so we just would sit there and listen to something and look at each other rather than looking at the screen
2: yes exactly so the way the way that it's been presented in the past is that a title card comes up on screen that says close your eyes and listen and then we uh. play the piece because it's kind of this um interesting thing that audio work obviously is best enjoyed on a great sound system and cinemas have great sound systems but they're so rarely presented in that format because of the fact that there's nothing on screen whereas i think that's actually quite an interesting space to put that work in. And I think, yeah, I I kind of like doing small things like that, that audiences don't necessarily expect to kind of expose them to things that they wouldn't necessarily expect from a film festival setting.
0: I'm a big fan of audio and closing my eyes, so I'm definitely going to be supporting you on that. I mean, I work in radio, so it's all about the sound, but I, I love that idea. So um, my sources also have told me that you are a writer, and uh, tell us about the Blink 182 novel. Oh, wow.
2: <laughs> Thank you to Stacey, my colleague there, for sharing that information.
0: I can't reveal my sources, I'm afraid.
2: <laughs> um, okay, where to begin? So when I was... <laughs> when i was 13 i wanted to be a a writer and the way that i would express that was writing kind of these like very bad short stories and i one day listened to the rock show by the pink 182 which is a great song The lyrics to this song would make a great story, and so thirteen-year-old Chloe started writing what some may call a fan fiction about the story within the rock show, the Blink One Eight Two song. So it's like a it's a love story about Tom Delonge, who is in Blink One Eight Two, and a photographer who is <laughs> on warped tour with him. I think this was also me projecting my kind of obsession with American culture when I was a kid. Um, Anyway, so when I was thirteen, I wrote this story and I hand wrote it, and I still have the notebook. And like every now and again, it would come up in conversation with friends, and I would reference that I had written the thing. And then during COVID, in the first lockdown here in London, one of my friends texted me and said, "You know, everyone is releasing their art on the internet for free to like get, help people get through <laughs> lockdown. So you should release the Blink One Eight Two story." <laughs> And I was like, I don't I don't know about this. Like, that doesn't seem right. Um, But she talked me around and I would have we had weekly calls where I would read for my friend for like three select friends chapters from the story. Um, And there'd be a cliffhanger every time. And then we would come back and they found it hysterical because the writing was just awful.
0: And I'm having flashes of my dad wrote a porno here.
2: Yes, it's very much that kind (laughs) of vibe. But the key, so the the modern day element of it is that I I never finished the story when I was 13 because I'm I'm not a finisher when it comes to these things. And I got to the end of the reading for my friends and realised that I had written out a chapter plan of what would happen in the rest of the book, I suppose you could call it. And I'd had so much fun reading it to my friends that I decided that I would finish writing the book. And so there's now two parts of this book, <laughs> one of which is penned by a 13-year-old and one of which is written by a 30-year-old. And I still have a couple of chapters left to go. But when I have finished, I feel like maybe I will release it in its entirety so that other people can enjoy the... Um, the monstrosity that I have created.
0: <laughs> well, I'm glad the book launch is going to be in Columbia, Missouri. I mean, I think that's very <laughs> fitting. <laughs> yeah, maybe we can get blink Two into play as well. There you go. So I know what your favourite film is. It's the Virgin Suicide, I guess. So what's your favourite documentary?
2: It's constantly changing. I, every time someone asks me this, I think of something different. I really love Time by Garrett Bradley. I think that film is absolutely incredible and I've watched it multiple times, and it still makes me cry every time at the end. There is a Romanian film called Toto and His Sisters, which is by the filmmaker Alexander Nanau, who was recently Oscar-nominated for Collective. It was his like second feature film.
0: We saw that at True Falls.
2: Ah, amazing, yeah. So Toto and His Sisters is a really beautiful film about, three siblings whose mother is in prison for drug trafficking and it's about how they survive without her on the outside. Um, it's a very like grim film. Their lives are not smooth sailing when she's gone, but the care and attention to the relationship with his subjects that the filmmaker has made is just so beautiful and it still manages to have such a like strong heart, despite being quite difficult to watch at times. Um, and then if I'm allowed a third, I would just say the other side of everything. These are all fairly recent films. I'm sure there's like classics that I'm forgetting, but the other side of everything is from a filmmaker called Mila Traslik. She's going to kill me because i butchered her surname about her family home in Belgrade, former Yugoslavia and in the family home, there was a door separating half of the house and it was locked during communist rule and half of the house was given away to another family. And so they shared their house, but there was this locked barrier between them. And this is the kind of starting point of the film that ultimately becomes about not only Yugoslavia breaking down, but also about modern day Serbia and the politics of the region and her relationship with her mother, who is a politician and academic. And it's a really amazing use of family archive, but also such an interesting reflection on space and the idea of home as well. So, yeah, I'd recommend everybody seek that film out.
0: Okay. Favourite biscuit to have with tea? Oh,
2: I don't really love tea. I know it's <gasps> controversial. Yeah, that's the right. And I'm also oh gluten God. intolerant. The biscuits aren't the one.
0: Wow. Our relationship but, could be over before it started. Yeah,
2: friendship cancelled. <laughs> um when I do have tea, though, I and when I could eat biscuits before I discovered my gluten intolerance, a chocolate digestive in tea is great because then you get the melted chocolate that stays in the tea as a flavour and it's
0: mm, delicious. OK, OK. Maybe you've resumed our friendship then. Favourite Indian dish? As Indian food is the national dish of the United Kingdom.
2: Ooh. Um, Not that
0: probably... you can get very many here in Colombia.
2: Oh, no, you've broken my heart. Oh, I probably sag paneer, I would say. But my order is sag paneer with sagaloo and pilau rice and then a poppadom with the, like, uh, (laughs) yoghurt.
0: I'm going to make that and have it ready for you when you get here. Oh, I can't wait. Finally, because you did live in the north of England for a while, mushy peas or no mushy peas with your chips? About which I mean fries. chips (laughs)
2: um i would actually controversially prefer curry sauce on chips
0: Ah, chips and gravy chips and curry sauce gravy okay true northerner at heart yeah although mushy peas i mean i did have a conversation with alex george skylock bookshop about mushy peas and he is not a fan so again i did take him down in my estimation when he didn't like (laughs) mushy peas (laughs) (laughs)
2: Uh, I will happily eat mushy peas to be clear (laughs) I just think curry sauce on chips is superior just trying to claw back after the biscuit incident (laughs) (laughs) when do we get to see
0: you in Colombia
2: as soon as I can I will be there um we're a bit unclear currently we're just working through my work visa so yeah we'll we'll keep everyone posted but we're not too sure at the moment
0: Okay, well, hopefully it's not too long until we see you here. Chloe Trainer is the new Artistic Director of Ragtag Film Society, and if you're already planning your early 2022 schedule, put a note in your diary that true-false will be from March the 3rd to the 6th, conditions on the ground permitting. Chloe, I am so thrilled that the Brits of Columbia have an extra seat at the table for tea and crumpets, and uh, I hope to see you soon, and thanks so much for taking time to chat today. Thanks, Anne. And that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm, as well as on Spotify. And of course, you can also connect with the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to my guests today, Stevens College Assistant Professor of Theatre, Brett Olsen, and Ragtag Film Society's new artistic director, Chloe Trainer. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song, Restless Heart, opens and closes the show. You can find more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally! Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks Behind the Arts Curtain. Until then, stay arty, Missouri!